Hello again, and welcome. My name is Kirsten Walsh, and you're listening to Podcasts on Process. This inaugural series takes a peek into the creative toolkit of choreographer Liz Lerman. Today's topic is documentation. In performance-based work, documentation is vital. Videos, photographs, music, even props and costumes are all records of time-based work. Today we'll build upon the discussion from previous episodes and consider how artists and organizations are utilizing several forms of documentation. Research can happen in so many ways, and in the previous episode, storytelling and non-traditional voices became an active form of research in the first person. And in the next episode, we'll talk about critique as a form of research. As a choreographer, Liz's process of exploring happens through movement, and that is one form of research for her. This is the foundation of her knowledge of the world around her. And to support her creative research, Liz documents. So what do I mean by documenting or documentation? Well, she is also an avid writer. Along with three published books, her blog, Field Notes from Liz Lerman, includes essays on aging, intuition, and categories. One of these blog posts is called Toolbox as Documentation. Here, Liz writes, I am interested in how we observe our processes, discern them as repeatable actions, develop them to become tools for others to borrow and make their own. I believe that we can harvest our histories, make sense of what we did, and describe them in terms that helps us understand the context, the decisions, and perhaps the wisdom and meaning surrounding the work. At the same time, we can delineate the data, information, formats, and processes that may aid others in their work. During rehearsals and residencies, Liz and the team use video to capture improvisational movement and review work. In this episode, we're going to hear how writing, video, and reflection can become documentation for working artists, for professionals, and for your own personal practice. My name is Holly Bass. I am a writer and performance artist. Thinking about the dilemma, particularly as someone who does a lot of ephemeral art, and how do you buy that or sell that or collect that? And so I've started trying to make an ancillary piece to the live performance pieces. So maybe it's a video, maybe it's a series of photographs, but it has to be really carefully constructed. We heard from Holly in the last episode, Who Gets to Dance? She described her recent piece, Black Space, and her continuing work with DC Public Works employees in Touch Truck Ballet. We know her practice as a dancer, choreographer, and performance artist, and Holly is also a writer and poet. I think some of my early stuff is super interesting, but I, that doesn't mean that I documented it properly <laughs> or that I even own the documentation, you know, working collectively. And, you know, so at least for me, when I was in my 20s, like, I don't know. I figure maybe some of that stuff will float to the surface or somebody's got it in their basement that, like, VHS tape. I don't know. Um, but it, moving forward, I do feel like it's a responsibility that I, um, that 
I have documentation in various forms. So. Well, there's also writing too, and so I keep all of my old notebooks. And but I've been, I was doing that like even you know in high school and college. I'm just a notebook keeper. Holly just described how she researches and archives her work through her own writing. As a curator peeking into an artist's creative life, I was curious how a writer and a scholar can support the work and voice of another artist. So our next guest is John Borstel. I'm John Borstel. I like to describe myself as an artist working at the crossroads of performance, photography, and text. I also like to think about artistic practices embracing a number of other things I do, which include facilitation uh, of various experiences, teaching, um, humane critique, advocacy (laughs) for the work of other artists, and um, writing. Uh, as it might manifest itself in um, blogging, interpretive writing, proposal writing, that kind of thing. We'll hear from him again in the episode on critique and feedback. But for the theme of documentation, I wanted to hear about John's work as the Humanities Senior Advisor at the Dance Exchange. So I've practiced a lot of that sort of work over 21 years here at Dance Exchange, starting as development director, evolving into a role called a humanities director, and more recently since I've gone to part-time, the uh, laudable title of senior advisor with humanities as my portfolio. And that's really entailed uh, a variety of activities. When I started doing it, I... Uh, put it under the rubric of um, documentation, dissemination, Mm -hmm. and dialogue. So about sort of documenting the aspects of the dance exchange's work, of Liz's body of knowledge that were unique and specific and applicable in the world, Uh, getting that into uh, the hands of people who could use it through things like our toolbox uh, and the propagation of critical response process. And um, then sort of the nature of the work was always that we were in kind of interdisciplinary conversations with people in other fields. So playing kind of a leading role sometimes. It sounds like I'm hearing that you're, you're an archivist, you're a scholar, you're a maker in your own right, but you also make here at the dance exchange, like you're, you're creating these things. So, and I think I heard maybe what like kind of a daily experience for you might be or the things that you might touch on, but how would your role have shifted um, or how does it work when Dance Exchange finds themselves at Wesleyan University for something like Ferocious Beauty Genome um, where there's, like what's your role like at, at those kind of points? There is no other dance company that has, has a, a humanities director. Um, I don't, there may be similar roles. And I used to tell people, well, if we were a theater company, I might be the dramaturg Mm -hmm. doing some of the things that a dramaturg does. If we were a museum, I might be the publications department doing some of the things that a publications and exhibitions department does. Uh, So the kinds of things I did did are not unique to the arts or unique to even a dance company. Mm -hmm. It's just the way the very specific kind of work Liz does to engage multiple forms of expression, multiple forms of communication, to really engage 
partners, whether they are people in other fields, whether they are are um, production artists, dancers, producing partners, presenters, really engage them in a dynamic way in the creation of work. All of that sort of created a sort of ethos and environment that really created a role for someone like me. And it actually involved, evolved out of me being the um, development director mm-hmm. and always sort of being involved in a programmatic scheming and strategizing and then we would for instance get a grant or the opportunity to work with a presenter would come through and then who who was going to do it so um it, it often took that form so so do, so, I, do I hear liaison as a part of that is sometimes sometimes uh, particularly when it's around a, a particular piece of programming Another example of John's work with the Dance Exchange included training conversation provocateurs for Liz's performance, Matter of Origins. In Act Two, science teachers, physicists, and artists, the provocateurs, carried on conversations with audience members as an informal science education curriculum. Included in all of this was a survey experience. This experiment needed hard evidence, and John's role became that of an evaluation designer. In many ways, I can see a lot of overlap between a humanities advisor at an organization like Dance Exchange and a curator. The humanities as, the, uh, as those realms of study that have to do with human experience and its vast diversity that are outside of the realm of actually doing the art. If you're doing the art, you're engaged in art making. If you're if you're examining the impact of the art or um, the function of the art uh, or the efficacy of the art, um, you're you're functioning inside a definition of the humanities. I learned about the next artist's work when we both enrolled in an interdisciplinary graduate course. In Podcasts on Process, we've had the opportunity to talk to many established professionals, but I realized I was hungry to hear the voice of a colleague and a peer. So I reached out to artist Maggie Schneider. My name is Maggie Schneider, and sometimes I identify myself by the actual media I use. Currently, my thesis business cards say Maggie Schneider or my website, and then they say um, dance, paint, video. I make differently because I'm a dancer, I think. And I don't usually say I am a dancer. I use movement often as like kind of a catch-all for what I do. Maggie's work in galleries is hard to miss, and my introduction to her practice was probably through her projection painting series. It precisely embodies how Maggie just described herself. Dance, paint, video. But I also know that like, if I am diligent and work hard and continue um, a regular like, physical training regime, I will accomplish the movements that I'm seeking to, move, to make. Projection painting, the body slowed down in time, capturing each frame, understanding how video works. Under, I mean, very simplistically, mind you capturing one frame and seeing the body shift in each frame capturing that registering it with a different color Mm -hmm. of paint on a wall a painting that is very much 
temporary because at the end of every show, you it has to be white. sanded and go back to white. So that, you know, that all kind of fed into each other. Um, it's a process piece. <clears throat> to describe the piece, you kind of have to describe the process. Yeah. I feel like. Which, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I really struggle with it because people are like, what is it about? And I'm like, I don't have a five-minute elevator speech for anything. Um, why do you think you, you made that, that jump between, like, what, why was documentation important to you at that point? Why was process important to you at that point? Process has always been important to me, um, partly because it reveals, un, um, the manipulation of materials through process reveals a new state in which to take up work further. Um, so, and for me, like, this has kind of just become embedded and it's less about like the necessary reusability of material, but more about the sustainability of my practice. So, mm. I've been fascinated by this work because to me, it encompasses all of the forms of documentation I'm curious about. Archive, process, and final product. The work is of course difficult to describe to listeners, but each gesture in this piece is articulated and separated by movement and color. Maggie's reinterpreting her body's movement back onto a wall through both paint and illuminated space. She's showing archive and process, all while recreating it into a final product. So we just heard from an emerging artist about her tools related to documentation. Let's cast the net a little wider and discuss how museums are examining some of these same ideas. The article, Dance Finds a Home in Museums, published by the New York Times, discusses the Walker Art Center's recent work with choreographer Ralph Lemon. Philip Byther, Performing Arts Senior Curator there, said, The Walker and Mr. Lemon are developing another model for the acquisition of Lemon's scaffold room. The museum will not be claiming ownership of the physical production, but rather, quote, a collection of memories of those who participated and those who watched it. As an emerging curator working with an artist like Liz Lerman, I was ecstatic to hear this. My name is Kelly Gordon. I'm a curator for Tunday's Media at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden at the Smithsonian. I studied medieval art history, so in a million years I never expected I would end up specializing in the most contemporary aspect of contemporary art. Uh, my moving image background was really experimental film, which I uh, began here producing in an auditorium type setting. And then as the nature of those types of works and video sort of expanded, uh, the whole practice of media took a turn, which kind of exploded in about 1999 when instead of being a marginal thing in any contemporary museum, it was something that really came to the forefront. And that was sort of the about the time we mark as the white box, black box kind of time that these works were really shown and collected and created more in, in the center of contemporary art making rather than over to the side. And then since, as you know, it's been expanding and expanding in all sorts of ways uh, ever since. 
Are other museums actively collecting time-based work in the same way? This question led me to Kelly Gordon, curator at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. We talked via phone about the museum's novel approaches to collecting time-based work. It's kind of a case-by-case basis. I did a a walk with Janet Cardiff that was created here. Mm -hmm. And while I knew that some of the places it stopped would mean that the work would be viable for quite a while, I knew also that once those works moved, and it went into another building at the Smithsonian, and once we had or didn't have access to that, that it may be something that was, you know, it had a temp, you know, had an expiration date. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, while we commissioned the the hardware and the software yes. to be able to make it available to people, um, there were a couple things that I tried to do, and I believe it was the last walk that she did. Um, one was she hadn't worked with what we would now think is like an iPod before and okay. was delighted with the degree of sound distinction that could be reached. I mean, it, and the way she records it has this surround dimension, so it really felt like it was going through your head. And it had voice mm-hmm. and it had music and other sounds. So that was one thing where it was over the course of the time that the thing was developing, we were able to help steer the artist to a kind of medium, if you will, where preserving it, uh, again, as a computer file in essence, and then also how we shared it with the public advanced because it, it was early in, in these kinds of technologies. Um, the other thing, and it's interesting you mentioned the, re- the response, that was really important to me because, again, I guess somewhere in my heart I realized there could be a time where all you could do is listen to this thing, but you couldn't walk around and use it in the way it was designed because the things wouldn't be there. And also because I thought it's possible in, in the future it might be studied by someone who couldn't experience it physically. Uh, and... <laughs> When people came for the headsets, they had to give us, I think it was driver's license or passport, something like that. But before they got it back, (laughs) they had to respond (laughs) in a book. (laughs) And again, that was like a written written response. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what was delightful was people, I mean, we told them in advance and people really made time to do it and took it very seriously. And... Really, again, for me, it's a really marvelous record for uh, anybody who studies the work in the future to have, not from me, an analysis or description or a contextualization, but really from, you know, the horse's mouth, if you will, what it felt like, what was surprising, how it made people look or see or feel, and I thought, that was a really important dimension of that particular project. We've heard two artists in this episode describe several ways they document their process. One way is through writing for a performance artist like Holly Bass. 
Another, Maggie Schneider, considers video and paint integral to the process and the final product. John Borstel described his role as humanity's senior advisor and how his personal toolkit served the dance exchange. And we also heard from Kelly Gordon at the Hirshhorn. A museum collecting not just objects or files, but a first-person experience around a single work. With all of this in mind, I've been looking at how audiences might engage in their own documentation around the work of art or around an experience. My research led me to the newly reopened Cooper Hewitt Design Museum in New York City and their development of, quote, the pen. This stylus lets a visitor digitally draw on a touchscreen. You can also scan labels for more information and access high-resolution digital images from the museum's collection while you're there. And when you leave, you simply drop off the pen, but in return, receive a dedicated web address. This URL is personalized documentation of your experience at the museum. Not to diminish the potency of this innovative approach, but I see it as akin to scrapbooking almost. I'm certainly guilty of keeping far too many pamphlets, train tickets, stickers, postcards, and I may take too many photographs. But each of these is a document connected to a memory, they're souvenirs. In fact, souvenir in French is the word for memory. And this is what I admire most about the Cooper Hewitt's approach. Why should a museum tell you what's important to you out of their entire collection? Why can't you pick and choose and determine what's most important from your experience firsthand? The best souvenirs are forms of documentation. They are reminders of an entire experience. As I move forward with my career, I hope to keep this question in the back of my mind. How can I consider documentation for the artist working on the project, for the institution that I'm partnered with, and for the audience member experiencing the work? For this episode's creative challenge, I'd like for you to take a peek at how you document what's important and critical to you. We archive our lives and post to public platforms regularly. So I'd like you to consider what form does it take? Are they videos, photos, writing, news articles? And in the spirit of the synthesizer, what themes do you see in your daily modes of documentation? I challenge you to find a way to capture your answer visually. You can take a photo and on Facebook or Instagram, tag your answer with our hashtag podcast on process, or you can also upload your photo by visiting the website. Thank you so much for your response. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like for you to consider podcasts on process in two ways. You're welcome to listen to the series as a full narrative from episodes one to six, or you can listen topic by topic, one tool at a time. Podcasts on process is supported by the Contemporary and Micah's MFA in Curatorial Practice Program. So thank you to my extraordinary faculty, mentors, and support team. The music you'll hear in this series was created by the remarkable Ruby Fulton and recorded by the group Nudie Suits. This episode and the whole series would not be possible without the incredible team around me. So I have to say thank you to just a few folks. First, thank you to the faculty of curatorial practice, to my extraordinary mentors, and to my support team from the Contemporary. The music you'll hear in this series was composed and recorded by the remarkable Ruby Fulton and the band Nudie Suits. 
And thank you to Estelle Klein and Sean Tubbs, my audio engineer magicians. A big thank you goes out to my classmates and my beautiful friends in curatorial practice, and to my husband, my unwavering volunteer and MacGyver on all of this. And last but not least, thank you to Liz Lerman, the stunning artist who graciously opened up her life and process to me. Uh-huh.